Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. $1.9 trillion fiscal stimulus about to be signed into law tomorrow by President Biden uh, seems to be a lot of things in this package for a lot of folks. Let's break it down. We can do that with Michael Zizas. Uh, he is the chief U.S. public policy and municipal strategist for Morgan Stanley based in New York. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here. I want to look at initially the amount of money that is going to states and local municipalities. Is it enough? And how do you think it will be utilized? Yeah, I think it's enough. I think it's enough. We had estimated back in May that state and local governments would be short of their budget estimates through the end of calendar year 2021 by about $270 billion. This is $350 billion. And our $270 billion probably now is actually too high of an estimate because we, uh, we were looking at an S&P level that was lower back then. Um, we did not account for unemployment being skewed towards lower income workers. So the, the tax base didn't suffer nearly as much as we thought. So $350 billion we think, will, will relatively well cover the revenue that state and local officials um, expect should have been there. So what, what does that money get used for at the end of the day? Well, you know, it will depend on a state-by-state basis, but ultimately it replaces lost revenue from lost economic activity, uh, probably enables operating budgets to stay intact, um, capital budgets to continue to flow, uh, and it basically just ensures that state and local governments can undertake the normal amount of economic activity they otherwise would have. So does it change um, issuance plans? Uh, Were they changed before the bill came along? Does it change rates? Um, has it already been priced in? Well, you know, with regard to the muni market, I mean, the muni market is is pricing in a way that I think reflects uh, a, a substantial amount of optimism and, and I think well-placed optimism about uh, the, the strength of credit quality, which is to say that if you're, you're providing $350 billion of grant money when the amount of revenue loss was going to be less than that, then the credit quality of the asset class is more or less what it was before the pandemic, which is not to say it, it didn't have its flaws, but um, certainly um, not nearly experienced the weakness that it was perceived to. So I don't think this has an impact on yields per se, uh, that, that muni yields will go down relative to treasury yields, but it sort of justifies uh, where market pricing is. You know, with regard to supply, I think potentially it transforms supply, whereas without this aid, you might have looked at municipalities doing some refunding activity to create budget savings. Uh, now they're probably more likely to be aggressive in their capital plans and, and borrow money to um, match the money they would have used on a pay-as-you-go basis to pay for roads and bridges, et cetera. All right. So, Michael, this uh bill passed strictly along partisan lines, uh, party lines. That does not bode well, I wouldn't think, for the next round of stimulus that presumably would have some bigger ticket items, some, uh, you know, some infrastructure. How are you guys thinking about that? Yeah. Well, I, I think the way to say, I think you're right, that there, there's nothing in this process that suggests that 
infrastructure can be done in a bipartisan way, at least easily. And so I think that sets up a process that is long and arduous uh, and probably one that we think will ultimately be a, a bill that has to be mostly deficit financed. So if you're going to have an infrastructure bill that approaches the ambition of what the Biden administration has laid out, there are just aspects of that bill that are probably non-starters for Republicans, starting with some of the tax increases uh, that they want to be adjacent to it, uh, as well as many of the environmental standards that they want to be adjacent to it. So if the Democrats have to go it alone, then they're probably going to have to follow this budget reconciliation process again. That probably means that you're looking at October passage, the earliest, because it has to be next fiscal year. And then the party amongst themselves has to develop a kind of unanimous view on the nitty gritty of what's in the bill in terms of labor standards, environmental standards, not just how much more money they want to spend on roads and bridges. It's a complicated negotiation. It'll take much of the year. Ultimately, we think it'll get over the finish line, but this one is a much harder lift than the COVID relief package. You think it'll be uh, more than $4 trillion bill coming over the finish line? That's not in our base case, and I think it's important to define time frames here, too. Over right? a decade, so, right? uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, the COVID relief bill is $1.9 trillion. The CBO says $1.2 will be spent this calendar year. The numbers quoted on infrastructure bills, they tend to be either five- or ten-year numbers. So um, in our view, yeah, you, you could look at a multi-trillion dollar number over ten years, um, it's entirely possible that the first proposals are five-year numbers. So there's a little bit of apples and orange comparisons here. At the end of the day, we think you'll see something that is at least $1.5 trillion spread out over five years or more. What else are you looking? What else are you guys looking at? What are you working on right now that we should be focusing on? Well, I think the, the tax debate inside of this legislative debate on infrastructure is, is critical. We're assuming at the end of the day that there's only 50 Democratic Senate votes for about five to six hundred billion dollars worth of tax increases over a 10 year period. And that's out of a menu of over three trillion dollars of tax increases that the Biden mm-hmm. administration has proposed. But if, but we would expect that the initial proposal here will probably include almost all of those tax increases. So there's, there's a wow. it's, it's important to understand the difference between the two because that could affect markets in the short term. All right. Tough to do a bipartisan bill on big tax increases. Americans much prefer free money. Michael Zizas, thanks very much. Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist at Morgan Stanley. Well, it's Thursday, so we had another jobless claims number hit today. The good news is it was the lowest since November. Came in a little bit better than expected at 712,000, but that's still a stubbornly, stubbornly high number. And it's against that backdrop that President Biden will sign uh, tomorrow, I believe, the uh, $1.9 trillion fiscal stimulus uh, plan. So let's bring that all together. We can do that with Chris Liu. He's a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Uh, he's a former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama, joining us on the phone from uh, Charlottesville. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start with the jobless claims. I'd love to get your thoughts as a former deputy secretary of labor about how you view this labor market today. Uh, are you concerned about some of this permanent unemployment that we may be seeing out there? Yeah, you know, I really am. I mean, we have, uh, with these weekly numbers, this is now the 
51st week in a row that has exceeded the worst of the Great Recession. So while the numbers are kind of inching down very slowly, they're still at a really elevated level. And I think what I'm as concerned about is, you know, the 4 million people um, who, uh, uh, who, who have lost their jobs permanently, uh, about 6 million people uh, who are working part-time but would rather be working full-time. Uh, we've got un- long-term unemployment at rates that, um, you know, we haven't seen really since the Great Recession at this point. And what we know is that the longer people are out of work, the harder it is to get them back. And I think what we've also seen over the pandemic is a lot of the broader changes in the economy, like the shift to online retail, uh, have been accelerated. So a lot of the jobs that people have left probably aren't there anymore right now. You know, the uh, the automation, um, which isn't the same as, as on, shifting to online, but it's similar, um, and the the shift of manufacturing labor to, for, labor to foreign shores was something that, Donald Trump was uh, working to turn around in some ways. He wanted to bring jobs back to America. President Biden thinks he can do a better job of it. Do you see that, too? You know, look, I I, I am confident that the plan they're going to put forward will do that. And I am hopeful that if we can get an infrastructure bill, a real infrastructure bill, that can bring back some of those jobs as well. But, you know, as you said, there are broader globalization trends that make this very challenging. You know, and so I think we need to understand that the manufacturing jobs, many of them that have gone overseas, probably aren't going back because labor costs are just too high in the United States. But when you move to things like advanced manufacturing, that is a place that we can continue to dominate here in the United States, but it's going to require a level of training of workers that exceeds what we have right now. Hey, Chris, you know, we've talked about the uh, the uh, bigger fiscal stimulus plan, maybe one that focuses on infrastructure. Um, that seems to be something that is on the Biden's uh, plate right now. Are you concerned that there's just been no bipartisan support of the this $1.9 trillion plan that really would call into question the ability to do anything bigger down the line? You know, I am concerned, and I think in part because, look, we can, we can you know, quibble about some of the things in the bill, but there are so many other things that are just wildly popular, leaving aside the stimulus checks, uh, you know, the uh, extension of unemployment benefits, which really needs to happen. Otherwise, 11 million people are going to start to lose uh, their checks starting next week. But it's the rental assistance, it's the assistance to small businesses, um, uh, money that goes uh, for vaccines and opening schools. So all of those things there should be consensus on. And I think it's an unfortunate sign of where partisanship is in Washington right now. That being said, look, we've talked now for for the entire Trump administration and now the beginning of the Biden administration is that maybe the sweet spot when it comes to bipartisanship is infrastructural. So we'll have to see whether that happens or not. How do you think Republicans on Capitol Hill are going to um, are going to react to the infrastructure bill because you know they didn't vote for this bill, but the Republican base was overwhelmingly in favor of it. So even though none of the representatives um, were able to cast a vote for it, the people they represent wanted it passed. Yeah, and I think that's obviously one of the, the contradictions here right now. I mean, I think with infrastructure as with everything else. The question is going to be how to pay for it. Uh, we've kind of tossed uh, the federal deficit out the window over the last couple of administrations. And You're not an MMT guy? You don't like the magic <laughs> money tree? Uh, look, I'm, I'm not one of these people who thinks that inflation is going to be a problem. But, uh, you know, once we got that 2017 tax 
cut done, and we've kind of stopped talking about the debt. Uh, that being said, look, uh, you know, how you pay for infrastructure will be a critical issue. And obviously, one of the things that the president, President Biden, has talked about is rolling back some of those two set 2017 tax cuts. So that will be an area where I think Republicans are going to have a hard time swallowing that. Uh, but I do think when it comes to, you know, the nuts and bolts of infrastructure, like roads and bridges and airports, uh, there is broad agreement. So hopefully we right. can come to that. Chris, uh, we hope, look, Chris Liu from the University of Virginia went to Harvard with um, Barack Obama, worked at Sidley with the Obamas, went to Washington with Obama. And we uh, we're guessing that the Biden team brings you back to D.C. very quickly. So please come back and talk to us after you get hired by the Biden administration. Chris Liu there, a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Now, I want to get straight over to Gabby Coppola. She covers, um, well, she covers cars for us. And today we're going to talk to her about Apple because we're all excited once again about the possibility of an Apple car. I feel like, Gabby, we've been we've been pretty stoked about this possibility for well on a decade now. Um, Is it ever going to happen? I think we're seeing very clear signals that it is going to happen. Um, I mean, just the talks, you know, with automakers that have been leaking. Uh, my colleagues and I did a story a couple of weeks ago about, you know, they're in talks trying to find um, LiDAR, which is sort of sensors for self-driving car features. Um, I think it is good. It really does look like it's going to happen this time. Uh, I think that it's still a few years away. Our reporting suggests that we're still several years away from seeing an actual product. Why would... Apple want to get into the auto business, Gabby? What's kind of their strategy? Yeah, well, I think um, it's almost become a cliche in my world, but thinking of a, of a car as an iPhone on wheels, um, especially okay. <laughs> when cars do have, um, do have uh, autonomous capabilities, think about it. I mean, think about what you're going to do in your car if you don't have to pay attention to the road. I mean, probably I'm going to be checking work email, but you could also be, you know, uh, watching TV or, you know, playing video games or basically all the kind of data and services and things shopping. Taking a selfie for the gram. Exactly. You'll be gramming. All of that. Apple wants to own that space. And so if, if this is the future, and I think even though it's, you know, still pretty far away, if the future is cars that can drive themselves, then... You're going to basically be living inside your phone when you're commuting, and Apple wants to be able to kind of provide you all the services in that let's space. Tr- let's try and guess how far away it is. From your experience reporting on um, you know, the traditional automakers, how long does it take from start to finish when somebody at GM or somebody at Ford uh, comes up with a concept for a new car to you know design it? to organize production, to figure out the supply chain. They get the, um, the prototype, then they um, you know, start testing it. I mean, what, what does that process take and cost, Gabby? Um, billions of dollars. Uh, <laughs> it costs billions of dollars. And um, I mean, a lot of that depends on if you're doing something brand new, which obviously Apple would be doing. So that means everything you just talked about, design, engineering, uh, testing for safety, you know, things like that, that takes years. So I think that whole process, I mean, Matt, I think you probably know as well as I do, but I, I want to say like five years, you know, um, and that's, that's if you're an automaker who's been doing this for a hundred years or you exactly, know. Uh, exactly. I was thinking yeah. five years and, and a couple billion dollars, but that's if you already 
have factories. That's if you're already designing and making cars. So Apple, we know, was just talking with Hyundai and a couple of mm-hmm. others. Chances are um, they're going to need to do a whole lot of that footwork themselves. Yeah, um, although the story I did today with uh, my colleague Mark German in, in L.A., who's our stellar uh, Apple reporter, um, talks about how you know Apple may want to take its iPhone handbook and kind of trans- try to transfer that to the auto industry. And um, you know they're very used to managing supply chains. And, and Foxconn, who we all know is a supplier to Apple, um, is trying to get into the electric vehicle manufacturing business. So that's why people are looking at them. Um, but I think, you know, Apple, as many uh, Silicon Valley uh, companies that have tried to get into the auto industry have realized it's really not fun making a car. I mean, maybe it's fun <laughs> to design it, but the, the money involved, the, the thin margins that you get for it, it's very different from, um, you know, writing some software and then charging huge margins on it. So I don't think they want to get their hands dirty with the manufacturing stuff. That's not what they do. Um, so that's why we think that, you know, it would make a lot of sense for them to go after a uh, contract manufacturer, which, you know, in our story, we talk about Magna, uh, which is a Canadian uh, global. Magnus Dyer built my truck. The exactly. truck I drive today. Right. Can, yeah. 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 So they can do soup to nuts car manufacturing and they've got a, a really um, long track record and a good reputation. Foxconn already has um, a good um Obviously, they're already right. in, in deep with Apple. It's just a question of can they really make cars? Can they make cars? Yeah. Bending metal, that's the tough part, as Kevin Tyner from Bloomberg Intelligence always says. Gabby Coppola, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Gabby Coppola is the auto reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from uh, Detroit. European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde discussed her monetary policy decision at a news conference this morning and had this to say about inflation. Inflation has picked up over recent months, mainly on account of some transitory factors and an increase in energy price inflation. At the same time, underlying price pressures remain subdued in the context of weak demand and significant slack in labor and product markets. So with that, the ECB also upped its inflation forecasts, not um, to an absolute level that is scary at all, 1% to 1.5%. And of course, Europe has had a much more difficult time bringing about inflation than has the U.S., right? Um, The ECB just simply hasn't been able to move the needle um, the way the Federal Reserve had. Um, And it's very interesting also the comparison because here in Europe, I would say inflation is probably um, considered more of an evil. Certainly in Germany, it's the last thing that people want to see. Memories of the uh, memories are, 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 are very long here. And the Weimar Republic, although very few people alive now lived through it, um, still uh, still leaves a serious scar in the German psyche. It's not nearly as bad, I think, in the U.S., Paul. Do you think yeah. that's the case? No, I think, no, and it's been a while since we've had real inflation here, the kind that hurts. Um, you know, so there's a discussion of, you know, kind of good inflation uh, versus bad inflation. Um, and I think you know, we saw the 10-year spike a couple of weeks ago, Matt, to 1.6%. That kind of got people's attention um, and cause them to say, okay, do we have some inflation creeping into uh, this economy more so than maybe we were 
forecasting and maybe quicker than we were forecasting. And boy, when you take a look at some of the commodities out there, you could certainly get some confirmation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was talking about this with Lisa Abramowitz, and, you know, she's of the opinion that, in, you know, unless you get real wage inflation, you're not going to get real inflation in this country. Well, I mean, then the kind of inflation that isn't real is still going to leave a lot of people hungry and unable to drive, right? So, uh, even if you don't get real inflation in the eyes of an economist or Lisa, who is uh, close <laughs> enough to be an economist, um, it's still going to be the kind of inflation that, that makes it hard for people to do grocery shopping and get to work and back if they still have a job. And the other thing I think is interesting is I'll never forget watching Ben Bernanke on 60 Minutes when he said, look, deflation is the big scare. Um, that's what we need to worry about. Inflation we can deal with, no problem. And you can understand where he's coming from. We heard it from Janet Yellen recently as well, who, of course, no longer at the Fed, but now in charge of Treasury, said inflation is something that we have the tools to deal with. But um, you and I were talking to someone recently who pointed out that, yeah, um, the Fed can stop inflation, no problem. Um, the only issue that they is that they crush the economy when they do it. The last time we saw it happen was Paul Volcker, um, and he was practically assaulted by members of the public as he raised rates to try and stop double-digit inflation. Let's bring in John Authors, um, who wrote a Bloomberg opinion piece about um, the only problem, basically, with the inflation scare being that he doesn't see any inflation. John... Um, are you saying that yet? Yes, <laughs> it's important uh, operative word yet. But yes, there is there is very little clear inflation showing up in the official numbers yet. So we've Thank seen you. it yeah. so far. We, I was just looking at beef prices, and they have been steadily yeah. rising. Uh, Paul noted oh. that um, it costs now three dollars a gallon to fill up uh, his tank with gas, which is certainly yeah. a rising price. And I noticed that yeah. um, the kids think rent is going to cost nine percent more next year. So some things. <laughs> are definitely starting to scare people. Oh, yes, definitely. What, what is interesting, uh, and, and the thing is we have always known um, people have been braced for months for an inflation scare in the early months of this year because um, the big lockdown and also the big fall in the oil price from March last year are going to drop out of year-on-year -year comparisons. Uh, and you're suddenly going to have headline inflation figures that look you know, not like a return to the 70s, but sharply worse. Uh, so a lot of people have been nervous about what that psycholog psychological effect will have. What is intriguing to me, just um, writing up uh, the, 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 my latest piece, is that it's not really new pieces of evidence about inflation that is really, truly scaring the market. It's um, nerves about bond yields because so much is running on ultimately leveraged trading on on on, um, on you know as we all know very low interest rates. Uh, and so the great concern is that we it's not so much that uh, or the great concern for the time being for, which explains these incredible um, rotations and moves within the market for the last week or two isn't about the long-term prospect of you know, a secular extent of inflation. It's about, are we going to have an accident in the bond market? Uh, and is that going to bring us all crashing down? Um, and somehow or other, we've just about avoided that. Um, all right, John. More by luck than judgment, probably. What are some of the areas, if we do, in fact, get some troubling inflation, where do you 
think you're, we're going to see it first? And what, kind of where, where, where are you paying attention? Well, other than other than oil, um, which isn't strictly part of what the the, uh, the Fed can try to try to cover, but that's obviously a, a, an important part of it. Uh, the area you just mentioned as well of uh, of rent, the, the fact that uh, the low rates have led to, to very sharp increases in in house prices, and that might well logically lead to uh, a rise in rents uh, in its wake. Other than that, it's all these areas that might be affected by supply bottlenecks, which is much of uh, much of mm. the economy. Um, yeah. Well, cars is yeah. one thing. I mean, I'm, I've noticed, John, that uh, dealers are marking up cars to an incredibly high margin because you just can't get them on the lot due to the chip shortage. Yes, and well, and uh, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to buy a laptop for my uh, for my daughter at the moment, and yes. That, that chip shortage also has an effect on computer prices. So you know th- those are those are big. It's it's it, it's those supply shortages. You know the the, the, the pig is working its way through the python, uh, and we're now at the stage where they're actually affecting prices here. Uh, and so if you then add that to the base effects and the worries about a change in psychology with all the money around, that's why people think a serious rise in inflation could be ahead of us. But I don't think. But what is interesting is that true serious inflation in the, the measures that we normally look at hasn't really got started yet. Hey, John, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, getting your thoughts. John Authors, senior editor, Bloomberg Markets, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us on the phone. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.